I'm a man who loves and is a good friend of your pastor, Rob McCoy. And a little more than a week ago, Pastor Rob asked me if I could come out tonight. I guess, well, he's away somewhere. I don't know exactly where Rob is. Does anybody know at any given time where Pastor Rob is? But, uh, but it's wonderful to be here, and I'm glad that I could come this evening. And I thought I'd just come and bring you something from God's Word, because that's what I really love to talk about. I love to talk about God and His Word. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Psalms 143. Uh, Pastor Rob told me that he's kind of been bouncing around through the Psalms, And so uh, I love thinking about and studying the Psalms. And so I picked a Psalm that I hadn't really taught before and I wanted to get into it. And so I studied it new and afresh for myself here this week. And that just makes me excited because my heart's kind of burning with the great theme of this Psalm. And so I'm going to begin in prayer and then we're just going to go through. We're going to take it apart piece by piece. I don't think I got anything really spectacular for I mean, the words are right there on the page. I'm just trying to deliver to you what these words say. That's it. I'm not trying to add to it. not trying to take away from it. I'm one of those preachers that's really firmly convinced that I don't have to find a message to bring to you. The message is right here. I just got to bring it out to you. So let's go. Okay. Father in heaven, we pray that you would just speak to us tonight by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for the sense of, um, of drawing near that you just gave to us as we came before your throne in worship. I thank you, Lord, that this is a place where you are worshiped in spirit and in truth. And we pray, God, that we would keep that attitude of reverent worship before you now as we come and open up our hearts to receive something from your word. We just say it simply tonight, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We also pray that you'd bless Pastor Rob on his travels here tonight. Bless him, Lord, and thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 143. Now, let me just say a couple words of introduction about this psalm. I don't know exactly why, but in the liturgical ceremonies and customs of the church, there have been selected seven what they call penitential psalms. And they're psalms that seem to reflect a unique attitude of humble confession before God. Now, these psalms are basically uh, Psalm 6 and 32 and 38 and Psalm 51. You remember Psalm 51, don't you? You know, that great cry unto God out of a broken and a contrite heart. Uh, Psalm 130 and 102, those are also other examples. And this right now, Psalm 143, this is the seventh of the seven penitential psalms. But can I just tell you something that's kind of weird about it? This psalm isn't particularly penitential. I don't quite know why it got numbered among the seven. One commentator that I read, he said, listen, they just like to arrange things in seven and they had to come up with the sevens and they chose this one. Maybe that's the case. I don't exactly know. There is one line in this psalm that really hits us as a line of humble contrition before God. But I think that God has something to speak to us through this psalm. And I want you to notice the emphasis. And I want you to notice as we make our way through this psalm tonight, how God speaks in this psalm about the soul. Now look, let let me just say a few words of reference. And this is always bad when I find myself talking before I actually get into the text. But when the Bible talks about the soul, sometimes it means different things. For here, the soul is simply referring to, in a general sense, the inner man. That part of us that's on the inside. You know, if your physical body were to die, 
you would have an aspect of your being that would continue to live. For the purposes of tonight's study, that's what he's talking about when he talks about the soul, the inner person. Okay, ready? Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. Well, we know from the title given to this psalm, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but the titles in the psalms, they're in the original Hebrew text. They're not just added on. So when it says in Psalm 143, I don't know what it says in your Bible, but in my Bible it says a psalm of David. That's taken from the Hebrew text. So when it says a psalm of David there, we can trust that it is genuinely a psalm of David. And what do we find when we look at this psalm? David's in trouble again. I mean, that's it all the time, isn't it? Somebody once said that the theme of the book of Psalms is this, life is hard, but God is good. And I think that's a pretty good theme for the book of Psalms. Well, David is in trouble all over again here in Psalm 143. Look at it right there, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications and your faithfulness answer me. Now, later on, he's going to go on and describe the trouble. But here's kind of the problem. Whenever David describes himself being in this time of trouble, we always want to place it to a particular point in his life. But you know what's difficult about that? He was in trouble so much, we don't know when it was particularly was. I mean, you could pick a time. Now, there are some people, and I would say that as I've studied this psalm, I come to think that there's at least a little bit of evidence for saying this. There's at least a little bit of evidence for saying that this might have been the trouble that he suffered when he was a king and when his son Absalom rebelled against him. Isn't that a remarkable thought? Listen, I don't know, you, you, you speak to parents from time to time, and you don't have to speak to a lot of parents to find a parent who has a child that's troublesome, a child that in some way has broken their heart. And, and this is common. I mean, it's touched our family at times. There's been a time when each one of our three children have given us some kind of grief or another. And so, I, I mean, I understand what that's talking about, but listen, I never had one of my children actually try to kill me and take everything I had. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I mean, I'm, that's what happened to David. Absalom, his own son, started a civil war against David. He tried to kill David and take everything that he had. That, that's pretty severe. So it could have been through that crisis. And I mean, if you want to assign it to anything, you might want to direct it that way, but we just don't know for sure. But listen, in this crisis, David knew that he had to cry out to God and that God must hear him. Isn't that a great way to begin any prayer? Look at verse one again. Hear my prayer, O Lord. He said, listen, Lord, if you don't hear me, I'm lost. David understood this, that prayer is not just some self-improvement program. There are people who think that way. They say, listen, it doesn't matter if God hears my prayer or not. I don't know if God hears my prayer, but when I pray, I'm a better person. Now listen, I do believe that I'm a better person for having prayed. I don't doubt that at all. And there is an aspect to self-improvement that's true about prayer. But listen, far beyond just self-improvement, there is a living God in heaven that we can appeal to to hear us. And he hears us. And that's what David understood. This wasn't just some Oprah-esque self-improvement program. 
No, he said, you got to hear me, God. you got to answer me in my time of need. You must help me. And then he goes on to say, give ear to my supplications. By the way, I'm sure Pastor Rob has mentioned this to you, but this is one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. Look at the first two lines again. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. Does it seem to you like he said the same thing twice? Because he did. That's one of the um, styles of Hebrew emphasis. You know, in the ancient Hebrew, they couldn't put things in big letters to give emphasis. They couldn't use boldface or a different font. They, couldn't, they didn't have those technologies available to them. So when they really wanted to emphasize something, what did they do? They would repeat it. And oftentimes, they would repeat the same idea in different words. And that's essentially what he's doing when he says, give ear to my supplications. But notice this, he says this, in your faithfulness, answer me, and in your righteousness. He appeals to the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. Now listen, this is beautiful. David prayed, and I believe he prayed effectively, because he knew something of the character of God. He's thinking of God up in heaven. God, listen, God, this is what I know about you. You're faithful and you're righteous. And if you want to be effective in prayer, you got to know something of the God that you're praying to. And so he says, listen, I know that you're faithful. I know that you can never be unfaithful. I know that you're righteous. I know that you can never be unrighteous. And so I appeal to you on that basis. At the same time, that's what he knows about God. Look at what he knows about himself. It's right there. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. That's verse 2. You see, David understood that if God were to deal with him only on the basis of God's righteousness, it would mean judgment and then ruin for David. So what did he do? He asked God to deal with him on the basis of mercy. Do you understand that? Do you understand that when you come before God, you need to ask him to deal with you on the basis of mercy? Now look, you may be a good person. You may be a fine person. You you, you may be the most upright, upstanding, good citizen here in the midst. You might win the blue ribbon for best person here award. Doesn't really matter. You're not good enough to prevail before God. Even the best person here among us must come to God and ask for mercy instead of coming and asking for what we deserve. It's almost as if David is thinking something like this. It's as if he's thinking, Lord, I know that you're righteous and I know that I'm not, yet I come to you as your servant asking that you act on my behalf because of your mercy, because of your righteousness and not on my own supposed righteousness. And in the midst of that speaking, uses this great phrase in verse two. Did you notice his phrase? He says, for in your sight, no one living is righteous. Doesn't it sound like he's been reading the book of Romans? Come on now, what does that sound like? Romans chapter three, verse 23, which says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or early in uh, in Romans 3.10, where he's quoting Isaiah and he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. See, this is a very powerful passage telling us and reminding us that there's none of us that are right in ourselves before God. And this is what I want you to notice. When David says that line, look at it there in your Bible. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. Who does he have in mind there? Himself. Look, it's easy for me to look out upon a wicked world. And I don't know if you notice, we live in a pretty wicked world. Pick up the newspaper, turn on the television, listen to the radio, you know, 
look up the news on the internet, look it up on your phone, if you can bear it. And you'll see we live in a pretty fallen world, don't we? It's pretty easy for us to say, yeah, all of them out there, you're all unrighteous. Yeah, those filthy, unwashed people. Why can't they all be wonderful, just like the people in our beautiful church? Until you realize what? Until you take a good look in the mirror and you realize, I'm not righteous. I need a savior. Well, sure, the whole world, it's true of them, but it's true of me as well. And so he has really come to this place where he understands his own great need before God. Now, what calls attention to our need, our weakness before God? Oftentimes it's pressure from the outside. That's in verses three and four. Look at it right here, verses three and four. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. Now listen, King David lived a wide and amazing life. When you think about it, this is the kind of life that lived the life of about five men, didn't he? I mean, he was an amazing poet. He was an awesome soldier. I wish I could just go on and start telling you stories about David's soldierly exploits, but that dude was awesome. I mean, he was a guy who, I mean, he was like a Navy SEAL, ninja, samurai, whatever. But that, in hand-to-hand combat, he killed a bunch of guys. And he saw himself through so many military things. He was an awesome ruler. He was the greatest king Israel ever had. He was a great diplomat. He was a great leader. He, he was a man of prayer. He was a prophet. He was the most amazing singer. I love this phrase that's used of David. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. Yet in all of those things that we think about David, this is one thing you need to remember about him is he knew a lot of trouble in his life. You know, sometimes I think, well, Lord, I want to have this amazing life, but at no cost. David was in this place where he knew suffering of many kinds. And I got to say, when I read this, when I studied it this week, would you look at verse three again with me? Just that first line, for the enemy has persecuted my soul. Look, Lord, it's one thing when they punch me in my face and bruise my body. It's one thing when they took away my house. It was another thing when they ran me away from here or denied me that promotion or on and on. But you know what he did? He persecuted my soul. There is something deep inside of me that somebody else has wounded. My soul is persecuted. I'm not talking about a superficial thing. I'm not talking about the thing that somebody gets over quickly. I'm talking about somebody who's in this agonizing place. Let me just read these verses to you again because I can't state it any better than this. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me to dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit's overwhelmed within me and my heart within me is distressed. I read those words and I think, I think of a poor child who's abused by their parents and crying out to God. I think of somebody who's harassed and made miserable by bullies around them and just can't get over it. 
I think about a man who even though he puts on a, a happy face, he feels like his life means nothing. I think about people who are the victims of persecution, the victims of hatred, the victims of rejection, the, 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 the victims of violence that goes far beyond the body but reaches down into the soul. And they cry out to God just like David did. I mean, he felt crushed. He felt crushed to the ground. He felt like he lived in the darkness that would be true of those who were long dead. He felt that his spirit was overwhelmed within himself. He felt that his heart was distressed. And collectively, this is just such an overwhelming picture of such deep misery. And all of this was pressed upon him by his enemy. There were terrible people who wanted him to feel that way. And look, I get how it is when we get together here for church. I don't know how it could be anything different. But y'all look like a good group of people to me. But I have no idea what's behind your face. I have no idea what you've been living with the past weeks or months or years that you still carry the scars from. Some years ago, I... uh, was the director of a Bible college in Germany. We were an extension campus out of the Bible college in Murrieta, and now up in Santa Barbara, we have an extension campus running up there. But anyway, one of the things we would do at the start of the semester in Germany every time is we would come up, and we would have students just say a little bit about themselves. And so you'd get up these students, they'd be anywhere, let's say the youngest would be maybe 18, and maybe the older ones would be like in their mid-20s. And sometimes we had a little older, a little younger, but that was it generally. And they'd come up, and it always blew my mind. I, I remember one girl in particular, she, she stood up and she said, yesterday I was at my fiancé's funeral. And this sweet German girl that you would have never suspected, I mean, just a happy, wonderful girl. And that's how she began. Yesterday I was at my fiancé's funeral. Then other people would get up and tell stories. And they weren't trying to drag him out because we only gave him a few minutes to tell the story. But they would talk about the abuse and the addiction and the difficulty. And it just always reminded me, you never know what is behind that heart, what is behind that face. And it just fills me with the love and the compassion of God. And this is, honestly, let, let's just be honest. I'm not trying up here to be something I'm not. I may not be able to relate to what you've gone through but there's a God in heaven who can. And, and if I'm played out on that, if all I can do is say, I feel terrible for what you've had to live through. I feel awful for that. But listen, there is a God enthroned in heaven, Jesus Christ, who knows it. Matter of fact, I want you to think of those lines again. Look at the lines there where it says, therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. David had a descendant. He's given the title in the scriptures, the son of David, and that's Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at those lines there in verse four, and let me read you what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Doesn't it sound like he's almost quoting David from the psalm? Well, I don't know if he was actually quoting David or just sharing the same thought, but Jesus knows it too. 
And Jesus can relate to you and to me in the deepest parts of our hidden pain. Now he goes on here, verse 5. Look at what he says. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the works of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Selah. I'm so struck by that line in verse 5 where he says this. I remember the days of old. David feels this great pain in his soul that's just hitting him like a dagger in the heart right now. And you know what he does? He thinks back and he goes, I remember when it wasn't like this. I remember when I was a shepherd boy. I just loved God. There I was just running through the fields trying to keep track of all these crazy sheep. And God was there helping me every day. And the sun would come up and the rain would come down and the stars would come out and God would blow my mind with how wonderful he was. I remember all that. I remember when it was so sweet. And on the one hand, it's a beautiful, tender memory to David because it's, oh God, you're so great. You're so beautiful. I love you so much. But on the other hand, it's a bitter memory to him. Do you know why? Because it feels so far away. You ever have that feeling? I do. I mean, I don't, I'm at that age where sometimes I feel like I'm old and sometimes I don't. But sometimes I look back at people in their station in life and I go, that feels like one million years ago to me. I remember the days of old. Now we can all think back to a time when we saw God moving, when we understand that. And you know what? If you don't have a personal experience of it, then we can know about it just from the pages of the Bible and the pages of history. There have been great times when God has poured out his spirit in an amazing way. God has done great works. Maybe he's done them in your life personally in days of old. Maybe you don't know about it, but he's done it in the lives of other people. And when we see that, when we understand that, it fills us both with a remembrance. Yes, Lord, you did it then. But then we're kind of hit. Lord, why don't you do it again? And that's why David says, I meditate, that's the next line, I meditate on all your works. I muse on the works of your hands. I want to think about it, Lord. I want to think about all the things you've done. Now I want you to notice something that he's doing here that's so wonderful. Do you see what David's doing right here? He's taken his mind off the pain in his soul and he's thinking about God and what God's done. Isn't that beautiful? Now I tell you, if you'll just remember that, Maybe if you were to forget everything else that we look at tonight. I hope you don't, but if you do, remember this. Remember the value of taking your focus. I'm not telling you to pretend. Did David pretend about the pain in his soul? No, he was real about it. I'm not telling you to pretend. I'm just saying, by act of your will, take your focus off your own pain, which is real. I'm not trying to say it's not real. Take your focus off your own pain and put it on God and the great things that he's done. David begins to sense that. He begins to feel the strength. Notice he says, I meditate on your works. I muse on the works of your hands. And then what does he say? He says, I spread out my hands to you. I love the transition there. First, he's thinking about the works of God's hands. And then he goes, what am I going to do? I'll spread out my hands to you. And especially in that ancient Hebrew culture, to spread out your hands before the Lord was a posture of prayer and praise. I love it to see people raise their hands before the Lord. It's a great thing. 
It's a biblical posture of praise, isn't it? And, and it's a way of just saying, God, I'm reaching out to you. God, I'll reach out to you. Would you pick up to me? Uh, you could also think about this. Okay, I surrender. I give up. Whatever's helpful for you. But David says, I stretch out my hands to you. And then he says, my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. That, that ache that David had, that soul pain, it didn't drive him away from God. It drove him to God. Friends, this is like a dividing line. I want you to think of like a drop of water that falls down on the Rocky Mountains right there at the Continental Divide. And on which side of the Rocky Mountains that drop of water lands on is going to determine whether it ends up in the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. I mean, think about it. There's two drops of water that can fall two feet away from each other and one of them's going to end up in the Atlantic and one is going to end up in the Pacific. And there are certain things in our life that are like a continental divide. That it's going to go on one side or another. It's like a point of decision for you and I. And David was just at one of these places of decision. And you and I, we're going to experience pain in this life. And we're going to experience some measure of soul pain. We're going to have it. And maybe some experience it worse than others. I'm not trying to pretend that we don't. Yes, some people have it in greater measure than others. But everyone else, but here's the divide. Is that pain going to drive you to God or away from him? Those two things are as far apart as the Atlantic or the Pacific. The pain that drives me to God or the pain that pushes me away from him. For David, it drove it to him. So he says, my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. So he's crying out to God. Look at him here now in verse seven. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I become like those who go down to the pit. Lord, I need your answer and I need it fast. Don't we really sympathize with David right here? It's kind of that prayer, Lord, I need patience and I need it right now. I mean, there's just sort of that heart that we just love, David. He's so real. He's just giving it to us the way he feels it. So he goes, yes, Lord, answer me speedily, O Lord. He said, God, don't hide your face from me. David knew what it was like to enjoy the sense of God's favor and blessing. I'm going to talk about something that I don't know if everybody in this room can relate to, but maybe you can. Do you know what it's like to sense that God smiles upon you from heaven. That, that God bestows his favor, his blessing on you. Now, I, I fear that there may be some people, you don't really know what that's about. Man, if, that's not, if you don't know what that's about, my prayer is that God would show you. Amen. That you would experience what I think is almost the exhilaration of feeling that God is smiling upon you from heaven, of knowing that beautiful grace of God outpoured in your life. Now listen, when you know what that's like, to have it cut off is about the worst thing imaginable. To go from, yes, I'm walking in the joy and the pleasure of the Lord, and then now that's been cut off, oh man, it's worse than anything you can imagine. How about this, much later, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What did he say? He said this. If God be for us, who can be against us? Right? Now, when you sense God is smiling upon you, you feel like God is for you. Can I turn that around? 
If God is against you, who can be for you? What does it matter? Right? If God's against you, how, how much else? Everything else is great in my life, but God's against me. Do, do you ever wonder how sometimes people can have everything but still be miserable? You go, man, look at all the money that guy's got. Look at all the success he's got. Look at all the accolades he has. Look at all the, the you know, look at his wife, man. I'm all the stuff that is supposed to make everybody happy. And by the way, don't a lot of celebrities fall into this category that we're talking about? You know, oh man, they got everything. Isn't it amazing? You know what they don't have? They don't have that sense of the pleasure of God smiling down in their life. If God be for us, who can be against us? But if God is against you, what does it matter if everything else is for you? That's why David cries out to God. He pleads with God. He says, listen, do not hide your face from me. I need this, God. I need to sense your daily pleasure, your daily smile upon me. And if I don't, look at what he says, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. It's like I'm sinking down in a pit unless I know that I'm right with you, unless I know that I have your pleasure and your favor flowing in my life. Now, he's gonna start in verse eight with some beautiful requests. Ready? He makes three great requests in the remainder of the psalm. Here's the first one, verse eight. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. For in you do I trust. Okay, now here's the second request. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. For I lift up my soul to you. No, for, consider the first one right there in verse 8. Cause me to hear. Now, do you know what it means? Cause, we don't really talk like that. Father, cause me to clean up my room. We don't talk like that. But you understand what it means, right? What's another way you could say it in our words? Make me. Make me to hear. He's like telling God, God, you better make me hear this. I need you to make me hear. Now, why? Because sometimes, Lord, I don't hear so good. So would you please make me hear this? I need it. If you've got to slap me around a little bit to hear this, fine, do it. But make me hear this, Lord. I need to hear this. But perhaps David wondered, maybe God's speaking good things to me, but I'm not hearing them. Couldn't that be the case with somebody here tonight? God is speaking all kinds of good things to you, but you're not hearing them. Now, I've never noticed it when I'm preaching, but I'm sure it's happened. I've never noticed it, somebody with earbuds while I'm preaching and like, you know, an iPod or something like that playing. Like I say, I'm I'm not, surely it's happened, surely. But I've never noticed it. But can you imagine is if God were speaking to us and we had our headphones in? We're just not listening. You know, we can almost see God mouthing the words to us, and we're like, yeah, whatever, man. I'm listening to this. Now, do, do, you, do you see what you're saying kind of symbolically? We're telling God, yank those earbuds out of my ears. Cause me to hear, and to hear what? Your loving kindness in the morning. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but this word, this ancient Hebrew word that's translated loving kindness, it's this great Hebrew word, chesed which means like his faithful covenant love, his great loving mercy. It's a great big word, and you can't just almost define it with one word, but it's a beautiful, powerful word. And he says, I want to hear your loving kindness, and when do I want it? I want to know it in the morning, early, first thing off. 
Man, don't, don't wait till the evening. Afternoon's too late. God, I need to know it in the morning. I need to know it promptly. So that's the first thing. Cause me to hear. Now look at the second thing in verse eight. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. Make me hear. Make me hear your love is what he's saying. Make me know the way I should walk. David confessed that he didn't know the way and that he needed God to make him know the way. He didn't just need to know the love of God. He also needed the guidance of God. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. That's a wonderful prayer to pray. I don't know if you guys ever do this. You make yourself reminders, you know, little pop-up things on your smartphone or little post-it notes you put around. But those are two great prayers for you to pray every day. Why don't you pray these two prayers? Number one, pray, Lord, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. And then pray this, Lord, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. Isn't this a problem? Sometimes we put our ears, we don't want to hear what God says. Other times we go, no, I I know which way to walk. I know. No, I know it all. Lord, I didn't even know your way. I got it. You know, look, I, I, everybody tells me around. I know, I know. Do you understand? You may just come before the Lord. No, Lord, really, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. Why? I love that at the end of verse eight. For in you do I trust, for I lift up my soul to you. Yes, Lord, I trust in you. I surrender to you. Continuing on, verse nine. So deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies, for in you I take shelter. You know, now David is thinking about those wicked people who afflict his soul. Remember those soul persecutors that he talked about in the, earlier in the psalm? Now he's saying, Lord, and this is such a powerful picture. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take my shelter. It's a very expressive word. It has the idea of a little child curling up on its mother's breast. I'm hiding in you. I'm taking my shelter in you. Protect me. Guide me. Help me, Lord. That's what he says. Verse 10. Did I tell you there were three requests? Here's the third one. The first one was caused me to know, hear your loving kindness in the morning. The second one was caused me to know your way. Now, finally, the third one, verse 10, teach me to do your will. Isn't that a great one? Now, okay, wait, wait a minute. Did you notice something? The first one was cause me to hear. The second one was cause me to know. But what does he say for the third one? Does he say cause me to do your will? No, what does he say? Teach me to do your will. Do you know why? Because God's not gonna make you do his will. He's not gonna do your obedience for you. Now listen, I believe in a great big God. I believe in a powerful God who has all things under control. I believe in a sovereign God. I believe that God is God and he knows what he's doing in heaven. But you know what? Even though I believe and I know, I also know this, God's not gonna live a life of obedience for me. He may live a life of obedience through me, but not for me. I'm gonna have to obey God. So what do I do? Do I tell God, yeah, God, don't worry about that obedience thing. I'll do it for you. No, no. This is what I say to God. I say, Lord, teach me. Teach me, God. Teach me to do your will, for you are God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Isn't that beautiful? I need it, Lord. I need it. I need you to teach me. I want to do your will. 
I'm going to speak a little more straightforwardly than I planned. But either we want to do God's will or we don't. Now, I know it's a little more complicated than that because sometimes we're conflicted, right? I do, but I don't. I do, but I don't. But at the end of the day, either we want to do God's will or we don't. If you want to do God's will, then make this your prayer. Teach me, Lord. Even when I want to do your will, it's not always within me to do it. So you have to teach me. Your will is beyond me at some times. So I need you to teach me. I need you to work in me. I need you to guide me. I need all these things. But can I just remind you there's an order here? What's the first prayer? Cause me to hear your loving kindness. The first thing is, Lord, let me know that I'm loved. Then what's the second thing he says? The second thing he says is, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. Give me some godly wisdom, God. Then it's obedience. And the three of those together are a very, very powerful picture. All right, let's take a look at the last two verses here, verses 11 and 12. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. All right, go back to verse 11. You notice what he says? Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. I love every time I see in the scriptures a prayer for revival. Isn't that what we need? Don't we need God to bring life to us again? Don't we need it as individuals? Doesn't every person need personal revival? But we also need it as families. We also need it as congregations. We also need it as communities. We need God to revive us. But it really begins with us as individuals. I want you to notice, he doesn't say this, revive them, O Lord, for your name's sake. That's what I want to pray, isn't it? God says, no, 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 no. You bring it back to yourself. No, revive me, O Lord. As long as I'm walking around with this attitude of pride and self-sufficiency and superiority, it's like, Well, I'm so spiritual. Lord, would you just please bring them up to my spiritual level and bring revival to them? Please, Lord, please do it for those people. How can that honor God? What foolishness. No, no, it's Lord, revive me. Revive me, oh Lord. But then notice this. For your name's sake. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe in revival. I believe that there are seasons when God pours out his spirit and there are remarkable advancements in the kingdom of God. I believe that there are times, now look, in normal times, the evangelist seeks the sinner. And that's what the evangelist should do. In times of revival, the sinner seeks the evangelist. And there's times like that. We see it in the Bible. We see it in church history. We see it in the, 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 our own nation's history. There are seasons of tremendous revival. I believe in revival, and I believe that Christians should pray for revival and should anticipate revival. Amen. Wouldn't it be a beautiful, powerful thing? Listen, I'll tell you about one work of revival that God did in the 19th century. It would be 1857 and 1858, about a year-long period in the United States. Now, at that time, the population of the United States was about 30 million people. And in that period of time, there were about a million people converted in one year. 
a million people out of 30 million. What's the population of the United States today? Okay. 300 million plus. What would it be like if in one year, 10 million people in the United States were converted and added to churches, by the way, converted and added to churches? I mean, that stuff happened in history on that scale. Wouldn't that just be glorious? Wouldn't it be blown? Now, I know people who are discouraged by praying for revival. They go, pray for revival? My Aunt Edna has been praying for revival for the last 90 years, and where has it come? And listen, I don't think I have all the answers to that. I don't know why. You know, I don't know why God delays prayers, but I will tell you this. I know a lot of people who pray for revival, and I'm not saying Aunt Edna's like this, but I, I know a lot of people who pray for revival. They pray for it in the wrong way. Let me tell you one of the ways they pray. I can't go into all the ways revival is prayed for wrongly, but I'll tell you one right here from this verse. Look at verse 11 again. Revive me, O Lord, so that I can be known as a great man of God. Is that what it says in the text? Revive me, O Lord, so that everybody will buy my album. (laughs) Revive me, O Lord, so that I'll have the most popular podcast on all of iTunes. Blah, 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 blah. You get the thing? But when we truly pray with our heart, revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. I don't care anything about my name. I don't care if I'm known or unknown. I don't care if I'm in obscurity or in light. I don't care, Lord, that's just completely irrelevant to me. But a lot of times when people pray for revival, they pray for it with a sense of self-interest and self-promotion that needs to be cleansed. Oh no, to truly pray, revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. To pray that again and again with the depths of someone's spirit, that's a powerful prayer. Then he says, for your righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. I like what one old Puritan commentator named John Trapp said about this. He said, listen, I can bring it into trouble, but I need you to bring it out of trouble. That's it, isn't it? I'm pretty good at bringing my soul into trouble, but Lord, you got to bring it out. And then he says, in your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. I don't know how much of the Psalms you guys have been studying with Pastor Rob, but if you study much of the Psalms, some of them are downright mean, aren't they? There's a title for those Psalms. They call them the imprecatory Psalms because they're just like, go get them. One of my favorite ones, and I, I, look, I'm a pastor. I should be able to quote you chapter and verse here, but I don't remember. But one of my favorite ones, there's a line in, in one of the Psalms where David says, break their teeth in their mouth. That's rough stuff. You know, it kind of gives a whole nother thought to the idea, I'm praying for you, bro. Yeah, Yeah, well, what are you praying? You're praying that line from Psalms for me? I mean, come on, what are you praying? Break their teeth in their mouth. Psalm 58. Okay, wow, okay. Boy, read that one. All right, now. Check this out, though. We kind of feel now at the end of the psalm, ooh, David, now you're getting into it. All those people who persecuted your soul, all those people who trouble, yeah, now you're saying, oh, God, go get them. Sick the dogs on them. Go get them, God. Yeah, that's what we want. And listen, it's true. David's saying, Lord, take care of my enemies. 
I want you to notice two things. First of all, what's David doing when he says, Lord, take care of my enemies? Is he saying, is he saying, you take care of them, Lord. Lord, vengeance belongs to you, not to me. And you know what? If you want to pray, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. And maybe you know some people who deserve it. Okay, but what you're saying when you pray that is, Lord, I'm not going to break their teeth. If there's any teeth breaking that needs to be done, you're going to have to do it because I'm not going to do it. Lord, I leave it all with you. I leave any vengeance. I leave any retribution. That's in your hands, God, not in mine. So that's one thing. Here's the other thing. And this is very powerful in the psalm, and I'll end on this point. Yes, David ended the psalm with saying, Lord, go get my enemies. But has that been the tone of the psalm all the way up to this point? No. You know what the tone of the psalm has been all up to this point? Lord, get me. Deal with me. Cause me, cause me, teach me. Get me, Lord. You see, David understood something that I want every person in this room to understand, including myself. Matter of fact, if you don't mind, I'm just going to preach to myself for a few minutes. I'm going to conclude by doing that. If you want to overhear it, that's fine with me. I, I am my worst enemy. I find it so easy to blame other people for the problems or the misery in my life. Oh, look at them, look at them, look at them. Oh, they did this. And you know what? Maybe they did it. I'm not trying to say they didn't. Look at them, but the focus is always on them and what those terrible people did and them and them and them and them and them. Listen, in this psalm, David has a way of just cutting through all of that and saying, listen, they may be wicked people. Maybe God needs to deal with them. David's not pretending that they don't, but you know what? First and foremost, Lord, you better deal with me. Deal with me first. Yes, Lord, I want you to deal with my enemies. I do. I'm not going to hide it. But you know what, God? First, deal with me. I need you to work on my heart. I need you to cause me to see your loving kindness. I need you to cause me to see your way, your wisdom. I need you to teach me to do your will. That, that is the place God wants us to be in. So, Father, I pray. I pray for each of us here, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who feel persecuted in their soul. I pray for those who, Lord, deal with that deep ache. Jesus, I pray that you would minister to them, that you would bring healing and blessing. But Lord, more than anything, that you would bring them into that place where they they know what it's like all over again to have your smile upon their life. And that anything that they have that's hindering a close and fellowship walk with you would just be swept away. That your grace, your goodness would abound in their life. Cause us to know your loving kindness. Cause us to know the way in which we should go. Teach us to do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.